Genesis chapter 12. A seminal passage in the scriptures. Among all the chapters of the Bible, it, it has to stand in the, in the top. Among the most important. So you came on a good night. We already opened up a little bit into it. First three or four verses or so, we're going to start right at the beginning. And let's walk this through together. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said, or the Lord had said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The closest parallel to this call of God on Abram, the closest that you'll find in the Bible, it's, it's not the call of Isaiah. And the Lord said, who shall we send? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. It's not the call to Moses at the burning bush. It's not the call of any of the prophets. The closest parallel that we can find in the scriptures to these three verses, this call from God to Abram to go forth and be a blessing is in the Gospels. It's when Jesus said in Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As God said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house. Leave it all behind and just follow me. So Jesus said, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I find that amazing because you don't see this kind of call or hear it in the law. You hear it from God pre-law and then post-law. Because the law is all about the works and the effort and the energy of man. The law was given so sin would increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, right? It's about the grace of God and the invitation. And when you can walk in God's grace, the invitation says, come and leave everything, and grace allows us to do that. I can leave everything and follow Jesus because he's the provider of everything. Everything comes from him. And so just as Abram heard from the Lord in Ur of the Chaldees, go forth and be a blessing, so the apostles heard from the Lord, follow me. So you and I hear from the Lord, come follow me. Go forth. Leave it all behind. Go forth and be a blessing, as we talked about on Sunday. And so Abram did, mostly. His going forth wasn't exactly forthwith. It would take a few decades. Nor was his going forth always forthright or forthcoming even. In fact, if Abram's faith had been a track and field event, I'm not sure he would have even come in fourth place. His formative faith was often fearful and faltering as we'll begin to see tonight. Abram, the father of the faithful, and yet his faith was fickle. How fitting. 
I think about this and I look at our father Abraham and it's like looking in the mirror because your faith and my faith can be so strong and so weak on the same day. Your faith and my faith can be so faithful and so faithless in the same hour. We, like Father Abraham, can stand up to the heights of faith and we can fall down on our knees in doubt. And so as we read the story of Abraham, in many ways we are reading our story. Because as children of our father Abraham, we just look like him. And you know what's wonderful about that? It's not the faltering and the faithlessness and the fickleness and the falling apart. What's wonderful about this is that God knows. He knows your frets. He knows your fears. He knows our flimsy excuses. And he's aware of our failure to launch. You notice I'm using all words that begin with the letter F. This is what our faith is about worth. We fail. We get an F. If we're measuring faith against the excellent perfection of the faithfulness of God, we get an F. We cannot match up. God knows. It's amazing to watch him working with this individual, with Abram, ultimately Abraham, and how God just walks alongside and waits patiently and dusts him off and says, come on, let's go again. He is such a faithful father to us all. Though I would give up, he never gives up. And he knew when he called Abram that this man's faith would be a lifelong process. Again, no surprise to God. Your faith, where you're at right now tonight, is no surprise to God. He knew you would be here. Not just here in the, in the physical building. He knew your faith would be exactly where it is tonight. Even if you're sitting there going, I don't even know if I believe. God knew that. And it's not upsetting to him. He's just glad you're here. By the way, he knows something you and I don't know. He knows the trajectory of our faith. He knows where it's going to be in a week or a month or a year. He knows if you're on the verge of walking away from him right now and you're saying, I just don't buy any of this stuff, he happens to know in 10 years you're going to be leading a ministry. <laughs> you don't know that. He knows and he continues to walk with us. It is faith formation by divine cultivation. And that really is the life span of Abram and of Rick and of you. Our lives are about the formation of faith. And so Abram went forth, verse 4, as the Lord had spoken to him. And Hebrews 11, verse 8 says, By faith Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. I love that verse. Didn't have a clue where he was headed. All he knew, and this is the faith of Abram, all he knew was God said, Go. So off he went. He had no roadmap. We talked about this Sunday. No GPS. He couldn't plug it into ways and see how long it would take him to get where he was going and what valleys he needed to walk through or what mountains he was going to scale. He had no idea. God said go and Abram went. And because he went, all of this begins to unfold. Because he would go forth and leave it all, ultimately, eventually, he would be made a great nation. He would be blessed. 
his name would become great. And truly, the name of Abraham is a name that is known worldwide, historically, one of the most known figures in history. Because he accepted God's call just to go and be a blessing. God said, I'll bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that is practically true today, as well as true in the coming kingdom. I mean, that's true right now. That in Abraham, all the families of the earth are blessed. And you know what's amazing to me in all this? Truly remarkable? Trump knows it. Do you know what he did today? Did you hear about this? I just heard about this when I came in. So let me inform those of you who haven't heard this, uh, and, and I am one who just heard this. Let's see if I can get it on my, there it is. Trump signs executive order to fight anti-Semitism on U.S. campuses. Title IV prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, and or national origin in programs and activities receiving federal financial funding. This order will define Jewish people as an ethnic group rather than just a religious group. Guess what? They are, as the chapter before us proves. It's a controversial step that grants broader authority to the Department of Education to respond to anti-Semitic incidences on college campuses under the Title IV of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is our message to universities, Trump said. If you want to accept the tremendous amount of federal dollars that you get every year, you must reject anti-Semitism. Praise the Lord. I, I added praise the Lord. He didn't say that. The order also adopts the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's broad definition of anti-Semitism, which considers certain criticisms of Israel to be anti-Semitic. Trump was accompanied at Wednesday's event by senior advisors Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, his son-in-law and daughter, both of whom are Jewish, as well as the New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. So regardless of what you think of the Patriots, hey, he was in the right place today. You know what my wife has in the back of our car, right? The little sticker that says, I, I root for the Seahawks and anyone playing the Patriots. <laughs> says here, the executive order resembles past legislation supported by Democrats and Republicans alike that has never made it out of Congress. It also comes as the country sees an uptick in cases of anti-Semitism as a couple of days ago or yesterday was it, the shooting in the Jewish market in Jersey City. So it just continues. Here we are 4,000 years after the call of Abram. And it goes on. It just goes on. Trump noted at the outset of his remarks that a Tuesday incident, or the Tuesday incident in New Jersey in which four people were killed in an anti-Semitic shooting. Um, and that's, that's all we got for that. So this, this was today. I'll tell you what. And I, I hate to have to even qualify this. But regardless of what you think of President Trump as a person, in the history, since the history of Israel, so we're talking over 70 years, back to 1948, no American president has done more for the state of Israel than President Trump. That's just an indisputable fact. What did the Lord tell Abram? I will bless those who bless you. And it's not lost on me that Trump signed this executive order on the day the impeachment circus really got underway. Well, it's been rolling for a while, but the day that the articles of impeachment against this president were introduced in the House of Representatives, he signs an executive order, and God says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. So it'll be interesting to see how this all rolls out. 
for Donald Trump. But forget Donald Trump for a moment. Listen, while the promised seed here, and we talked about this seed on Sunday, the promised seed that's gonna come through Abram, through the line of Abram, while this promised seed would bless all the nations, the promises came first to and through the Jew. In fact, of these six promises, remember there are two, two imperatives followed by three promises each. So these six promises, five out of the six promises in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 12 are directly for and to the line of Abram, Abram and his lineage. It's only the sixth one that then goes out to the world that is for all the nations. The rest of them are direct to Abram and his lineage. Why? Why the Jew? Why did God choose Israel? Why is Israel so important? Why do you talk about Israel here at the bridge? Why don't you just talk about Christian stuff and forget about Jewish people? Why do they matter so much? Well, a full half the Bible, more than half, 39 chapters of the Bible are all about Israel. And then the other 27 are all about how Israel became, you know, followers of the Jew Christ. I mean, there, you can't read and study the scriptures without understanding the chosen people, Israel. And God chose them. Why? Let me just give you three reasons real quickly before we go on into the rest of the study. God chose Israel, number one, to be his witnesses. To be his witnesses. Isaiah chapter 43. Turn in your Bibles over to Isaiah 43. It's right about in the middle, so pretty easy to find. Book of the prophet Isaiah chapter 43. And God, again, chose Israel, number one, to be his witnesses. Up until now, he's been working with the nations. You know, he began with Adam and Eve, and then we, we got to Noah. And then following Noah, we saw Babel. And now we come around, and he's dialing into not just the nations, not just humanity at large, but the people, a direct lineage of people through this man, Abram, and then we'll see through Isaac and Jacob and Judah all the way to the seed. But he promised, he chose them to be his witnesses. And Isaiah 43, verse 10 says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. So pretty clear there. And my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no savior besides me. Which I love that verse because Jesus claimed to be our savior. Well, there is no savior besides God. Exactly, exactly. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God, even from eternity I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Skip over to chapter 44, verse 23. Isaiah 44, 23. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. God chose Israel to be 
his witnesses. That they would witness his glory, experience his glory, and tell the world about his glory. Witnesses who would give testimony. By the way, the church follows suit. It's one of the primary things we are called to do. In fact, I would say it's the primary thing if, if we understand that that means that we are to love. That we're to love God first and then we're love, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in that love, we are his witnesses, just as Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth, Acts chapter one, verse eight. So Israel called to be his witnesses. The church grafted in brought in, expanding now from Israel to also be his witnesses. That's the call. And so God chose a people group, specifically this people group, Israel, to be his witnesses. Secondly, God chose Israel to keep his word. To keep his word. Now, to their credit, and to our benefit, Jewish scribes have meticulously preserved the word of God down through the ages. And you can do study on this and check it out and, and think it through, and I encourage you to. I had a lot of notes that I actually had to kind of pull out because there's too much else to cover tonight. But Israel has been amazing at keeping his word. And, and I'm talking about the Hebrew scriptures. Remarkable, when, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, 1947, which is coincidental that they were discovered in 1947 and Israel became a nation in 1948. Wow, how do these things happen? When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in Qumran, in Israel, and they were carefully unrolled, we discovered an entire scroll of Isaiah. And that scroll of Isaiah, and this is, this is dating back to the first century, okay? So this is ancient stuff. Back to the days of Jesus, this scroll of Isaiah, when compared to the scroll of Isaiah in what's called the Masoretic text, written, or, or we know copied down around the 10th century, it's almost identical. The difference between the two, some spelling errors. They have been so, and, and for scribes to write, it was said that when a scribe would copy down on a scroll a, a page of scripture, one mistake, and they had to mark through it and put it away and start over. They were so careful in the writing, trained to get everything right, not to change a thing. It had to be precise. It had to be exact because they recognized it was God's word, and God chose a people who would do it, and they have done it. Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that word oracles is logion from the word logos. They were entrusted with the word of God. And so the faithful accuracy of the Bible is absolutely unmistakable. It's vitally important to our faith. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but you could have only the Hebrew scriptures and find your way to Messiah. You could come to faith in Jesus without the New Testament. Now, I wouldn't suggest it because the New Testament is, is the completion of the whole thing. It's all God's word. But in keeping this word that's so important to our faith, Jesus said something even more vital. 
Written first in Psalm 40, verse 7, quoted again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said it both times, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of. Spit it out. Me. me. Not me, you, or me, 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 Jesus. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Now listen to this, because while painstakingly keeping every I and, and, and crossing every T, keeping the scriptures, many of the scribes and Pharisees lost sight of the word. They saw the words, they copied the words, but they didn't see the word, and Jesus called them on it. You guys are familiar with this verse, should be by now. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life, Jesus says. Now, I know I quote that all the time. Do you know why? I mean, that was one of the seminal verses we kept repeating over and over through the Revelation study. Over the years here at the bridge, we have quoted John 5, 39 again and again and again. It is these which testify of me. The reason I quote it so much is so that we would not make the same mistake as his witnesses in Israel did in writing the words, reciting the words, learning the word, and missing the word, Jesus Christ. But God chose Israel to be his witnesses. He chose them to keep his word. And then thirdly and finally, God chose Israel, I like this, to be conduits of his wattage. Word, witnesses, wattage. What are you talking about, Rick? To be conduits of the light of the world. And it's a good way to think about it. That's the role of Israel. It's also the role of the believer today, to be conduits of his light. We're not the light. He's the light. But we are conduits of that. Skip over to Isaiah chapter 49. If you're still in Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6. And keep close eyes on this. He says, that is the Lord says, Isaiah 49, 6, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Who's the servant here? It's Jesus. Thank you for jumping out, Mike. You know what? I appreciate your boldness. I think people are afraid to be bold because they know if, I, if they're wrong, I'm gonna say, no, you're wrong. And that's, no one wants to hear that. Bless you, Mike. <laughs> but listen, Mike, if you didn't hear him, Mike said, I said, who's the servant here? Mike said, Israel. Who said Jesus? Was it you, Jake? Oh, it was you, Doug. Okay, well. <laughs> so Doug says it's Jesus. Mike says it's Israel. You know what? Israel would say it's Israel. The Jewish people would read this and go, well, that's Israel. We're the servant. And in fact, there are several servant songs in the letter, the book of Isaiah, the prophet, and in all these servant songs, the Jewish people say the servant is Israel. It's us. But look and listen again. God says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Well, wait, if the servant is Israel, is God saying that the servant is gonna raise up, that Israel's gonna raise up Israel? That doesn't make any sense. No, the servant is gonna raise up Israel and restore the preserved ones of Israel. He's talking about Messiah. 
and he is talking about Jesus here. Though the Jewish people would say, no, that's us. No, no, this is Messiah, who, I guess to be fair, is a Jew. So there's a connection to the Jewish people. He's the perfect Jew. But Jesus is the one of whom is being spoken, where God also says, I will make you, you singular, you Messiah, a light of the nation, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is unquestionably Jesus. And both Israel and the church, our entire role is simply to bring the light of the world only in as much as we're conductors of the true light. We are not the light. You are not the light of the world. Part of the reason why I'm sticking on this for a moment is I've shared with you that one of the commentaries I'm reading, and I just find it fascinating, is Dennis Prager's commentary on Jesus. Dennis Prager is not a believer in, sorry, commentary on Genesis. He's not a believer in Jesus. He has great respect for Christianity, but Prager is a Jew. And Prager's commentary is purely from a modern Jewish perspective. And so I find it fascinating to read it and think about kind of the perspective he's bringing. But he's already talked about Genesis chapter 12 and the whole calling of the people of Israel was to bless the world. Our job is to be a light to the nations. I read that and went, with all due respect, Mr. Prager, no, it's not. Your job is not to be the light of the world. Your job is to be a conduit of the light of the world who is Jesus Christ. And that's why Israel was called to be a witness, to keep the word, and to be conduits of the wattage, that is, of the glory of the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Israel was called by God originally to be the conduit of the Christ. And whether or not they knew they were being, that's exactly what happened. Israel is the conduit to the Christ. Romans 9, 4 Paul talks about those who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, those promises, some of which we already read, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, whose are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever, amen. So in a nutshell, and there's much more we could get into with Israel, and, and we will. We will as we go through the Hebrew Scriptures, Lord willing. What we understand is that they were called to be witnesses, to be keepers of his word, and to be conduits of the wattage. And all of that declares the glory of God. That's why Israel was called. God chose a man and chose to work through a people group so that we could see how he interacts with people before ultimately he would open the doors wide and say, I am here to interact with all people and you personally. Well, back in Genesis 12, verse four, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And right out the gate, we have two troubling problems. First off, we have a tag-along trouble. Lot went with him. Okay, so Terach, his father, has died, died in Haran, and so now Abram finally, after 25 years of pausing in Haran, you know the story from Sunday, he now begins to make his way out west and into the land of Canaan. 
the promised land, the land God would show him. But Lot went with him. When God called Abram, and, and, and different commentators disagree on this, but most look at this and say, God was pretty clear. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house. That is no strings attached. I want you to leave and leave it all behind and just come follow me. See, that's why I say it's a lot like the Gospels because that's what Jesus did with the apostles. They're out there cleaning their nets and he says, follow me, and they drop their nets and off they go. Leave father, leave family, leave, leave your livelihood. Just come follow me. And this is what he told Abram, but Abram now brings along Lot. And I called him on Sunday ibuprofen because he'd be a headache, right? I think ibuprofen has a good Hebrew sound to it, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know? You got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ibuprofen. <laughs> Lot is going to get himself kidnapped. And Abram's going to have to go after him and rescue him. By the way, in Israel, in the north of Israel, there's a gate. It's an ancient Canaanite gate. Every time I see it, it fascinates me. We, we, we go there every time we're in Israel. It's an archway. And at this archway, we know who was there, we know the people that were there, and we know that Lot was taken through that and Abraham passed through that gate, 4,000 years old. Man, we live in this country and we see monuments that are 200 years old and go, isn't that ancient? <laughs> Tag along troubles. Lot gets himself kidnapped, hauled up there, taken through that gate. Abram has to go after him. It's called the War of the Kings. We'll see that in chapter 14. Lot's gonna end up surrounded by sin in Sodom. His wife's gonna be the new poster model for Morton Salt. And then, oh, here's, here's a couple of beauties. Lot's daughters, who we'll just call twisted sisters, <laughs> will get him drunk, lay with him, and birth two boys by their dad. <laughs> and those two boys' names were Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who would be thorns in the east side of Israel for their entire existence, still to some degree today, because that's Jordan. Now, Jordan is not a horrible neighbor to Israel, but they really haven't been the best friend either. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, that's, that's Jordan. Beware of tagalongs. Just beware of tagalongs to your faith. And, and I'm talking, and please don't misunderstand me here. I, I really processed and I prayed about this one. Tagalongs of faith, specifically those who will be a detraction from your following Jesus. Those who will hurt your faith, who will hinder your moving forward, who will be a distraction from your love of the Lord. I'm not saying don't care about those who would cling on to you, but beware the tagalong. And especially when you're new in faith, sometimes the most dangerous place to be is brand new in faith and you wanna save the world, praise the Lord, that's been put into your heart, but you're not established. And it's best to get yourself established, make sure you've got some understanding, and then go back and get whoever you need to. But those tagalongs to faith can damage faith early on. Lot was a tagalong and caused numerous problems for Abram. But again, what's marvelous is the Lord, the Lord works with him. The Lord doesn't stop him at the border of the promised land and say, Abram, what'd I say? 
Leave your relatives. Who's this guy? Don't tell me, I know. Send him back. <laughs> no, he, you want to bring Lot? All right, I'll work with you. Nobody is more patient than God. You want to do it your way? All right, I'll work with you. It's going to be messy. I'm not going to leave you. But no, it's going to be a mess. And so on comes Lot. But what's marvelous to me is that God not only increases and develops and forms Abram's faith, he saves Lot. Second Peter chapter two, verse seven, he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, that is in Sodom and Gomorrah, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by lawless deeds. That tells us at least where Lot's head was. Even though he had moved down into Sodom, he didn't go there for Sin City. He went there because it was beautiful. We'll find that out Sunday. He went down there because it looked like a great place to raise his flocks and herds. Chose the best place in the land for it. Bad choice. But he ends up surrounded and tormented by all the sin and sickness that's all about him. And 2 Peter chapter 2 Verse nine says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And he rescued Lot, gets him out of there. Where did Lot learn about righteousness? He tagged along. And that tells me that though I give the warning, be careful to tag along, be aware of your faith. In fact, isn't it Galatians chapter six where the Lord says, restore a brother, but be careful Keep an eye on your own self that you don't get tempted or don't fall the same way. Don't think you're so strong. Someone's tagging along, okay, but be aware if the tag becomes a drag, okay? That's a good one. <laughs> Write that down, man. Hashtag, tag no drag. Hashtag, get it? Hashtag no drag, yeah. <laughs> God's grace is big. God's grace can even work with the lots of the world who tag along. Second problem, though, here in verse 4, it says Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So this is actually a terrible problem. I couldn't pronounce it well enough. You know how was, I've been pronouncing terah, terach. So this is a terachable problem. <laughs> Thanks. Chapter 11, verse 20 <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 20, what is it, 6, look at this. Terach lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So he started being a father, and these are his three sons, at the age of 70. Okay, that, that, that's fine, what's the problem? Well, then we know that in verse 32 of chapter 11, that Terach died at 205. Okay, everybody with me on this? So that means that if he began having sons when he was 70 and he died at 205, that his oldest son would have to be 135 years old, right? 135, 70 to 205, right. But Abram left Haran at the age of 75. And if, if it's Abram, Nahor, and Haran, if Abram's the eldest son, then Abram would be 135, not 75, when he departed from Haran, which is what verse 12 or verse 4 tells us. So I start to get confused because numbers confuse me. But we have a 60-year difference here that's unaccounted for. 
Well, someone might suggest, maybe Abram left Haran before Terach died. That would explain it. And we don't, you know, there's nothing here, just that he was born when his father was 70 and then left when he was 75. His father died at 205. So, so if you do the math, well, maybe, yeah, maybe Abram headed out from Haran before Terach actually died. Well, thanks a lot, Stephen. He doesn't leave us the option. Because if you go to Acts chapter seven, verse four, Stephen, in that marvelous sermon we began to talk about a bit on Sunday, said, Abram left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country where we are right now. That, that's what Stephen said. So it was after Terach died that Abram left Haran and moved into Canaan's land and if he's the firstborn son, he'd have to be 135, not 75. But the Bible says here he's 75. How do we work it out? Some suggest that Abram may have left Terach in Haran alive in the flesh, but spiritually dead. That, that's how they'll make the explanation that he was dead in his paganism. He was buried in the muck and mire of his idolatry and therefore technically he was dead and so he died and, and that's when Abram actually left. It was a spiritual death. That preaches but it's not really very accurate. You know, you can probably drum up something spiritual around that but there's only really one possibility if we take the word at face value and if we look at the numbers, and that is that Abram is not the oldest son. He's not the firstborn. That it was either Nahor or Haran. Now, if you're looking at it, you're saying, yeah, but it says he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Yes, but Abram, while perhaps not the eldest, but maybe the youngest, is listed first in the toldot of Terach because the story is now his. Because now all the focus is going to be on him. And so his name is put to the front of the list of the three boys. And that's the closest explanation I can give you. Anything else, we're just going to have to be doing guesswork and surmise and, and commentarians have been doing it for a thousand years and haven't figured it out yet. So we're going to let it sit right there and assume that perhaps Abram was not the oldest son, the firstborn, but was perhaps second or third. By the way, one other thing to note about verse four, every single turning point in Abe's life gives his age. So when you see Abram being, his age being given, mark that, note that in your scriptures because something big is about to happen or is happening in that moment. And this is huge because at this point, he finally is departing from Haran. He is finally on his way, verse five. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Some view that verse negatively. And again, entire sermons are preached, anti-Abram sermons, I guess you could say, saying that Abram was disobedient here because not only did he bring along his nephew, disobeying God's call on leaving his relatives, but he brought along all his stuff. And it's his riches that tripped him up. Two problems with that. Number one, we never really see his riches tripping him up. Doesn't seem to be an issue for Abram. He's got flocks and herds. 
He's got men servants and maid servants. He's, he's, he's got all this wealth. That doesn't seem to be an Abrahamic problem. But the other thing to note here in hauling along his accumulated wealth is there's nowhere in the scriptures where God tells him not to. Show me the verse that says, the Lord saith to Abram, have thyself a garage sale prior to leaving the land. You're not gonna find it. You know what I think? I think God's blessing Abram ahead. I think as I said a few moments ago that God knows right where you are right now today and while your decisions may not be Godward yet, and I'm not pointing any fingers to anybody, but, but you may be in a place where, I don't know, I'm just kind of bumping along in life. I'm not sure really where I'm headed. And God knows where you're headed. And he's blessing you right now because of where you're gonna be. Because he knows what you're gonna need to get where you're going. And, and the only support I can give for this is my own life. I, I look back over my life, Sharon and I have this, this conversation from time to time about times when we weren't given a cent to the church. We were not giving a dime. We were not trusting God at all financially. And he kept blessing us. I'm not suggesting you try this. <laughs> but I think God looked ahead. I, I think, well, I know this. God sees the entire trajectory of your life, start to finish. He already knows where you're gonna be on that final day. And I think he just blesses his people. And I think he's already blessing Abram ahead of time. You're gonna lollygag in Haran for 25 years? I'll bless you. And I'll see you in Canaan. And so Abram is already a very blessed individual. Verse six, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Interesting. The Bible acknowledges the Canaanite is in the land but gives no rights to the people living there. No rights to the people of Canaan. Simply acknowledges that they're there, but the only people in history and in the Bible afforded any right of title to this land are the people of Israel. Philistines were not given title to the land. The Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Amorites and all the rest of the ites, none of them could hold or show title to the land, but the Bible is the title of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. God gave it to them. He will make it clear again and again and again. And so Abram comes into a land and the Canaanites there already, but not owning, not holding title. He mentions here this Oak of Moreh, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, it's Elon Moray. Don't write Elon Musk, Elon Moray. Elon Moray, it means literally terebinth of the teacher. Terebinth of the teacher. Oak is Elon, and it's actually the word terebinth, the terebinth tree in Israel, Moray being teacher. Terebinth of the, treacher, uh, of the teacher, and in Judges chapter nine, verse seven, it's called the diviner's oak. Terebinth of the teacher, the diviner's oak in the land of Canaan. My friends, it's a pagan site. It's a site of pagan worship and, and pagan study and pagan oracles of the Canaanites were discussed here at this oak of Moreh, this terebinth of the teacher. How interesting that Abram literally goes all the way through the land and comes down to Shechem because where he was in Haran, that's up in the region of Syria. So that would be up to the north 
to the northeast of Israel, and then he would come into Israel in the far north and make his way down the land to Shechem. Why? And why does he stop there at the, at the Oak of Moray? Is this old pagan stuff coming up? No, watch this. This is faith. This is faith. Because along comes the truth and gets right in the face of all these pagan lies. Along comes the truth carried by Abram with his young faith, the truth of God. God is establishing something here since Abram in, and this is the place, not just where Abram chooses to stop, this is the place of God's first appearance to him in the land. He stops because God appears to him there. Look at verse seven. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. I'm amazed by that. God shows up at the Oak of Moray, the pagan teaching center. That's just amazing. That's, that would be like God showing up at the Christian Science Reading Room. <laughs> Lord, you're here. Yeah, I want to reestablish some truth. And that's what he's doing. Right up in the face of paganism, God appears to Abram in the land at the Oak of Moray. And this is now the second revelation. Remember I told you there are seven of them this is the second revelation of God to Abram, but this time he doesn't just speak to Abram. This time he's there in person. It says the Lord appeared. You might want to highlight that. The Lord appeared. The Lord appeared. So Abram saw the Lord. Remember what Jesus said? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is one of several instances, listen to me, where Abram may have seen Jesus. He saw the Lord. The Lord appeared. They call it, in theological terms, a theophany, and that is an appearance of God, a theophany. I like better the, the, the name a Christophany. And I believe it's Jesus. And I believe, personally, this is just Rick, so you know, take it for what it's worth. <laughs> but I believe throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, anytime the Lord appears, it's Jesus. Why is that? John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. Jesus tells us that. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, if we see God, we're seeing Jesus. Am I, am I out on a limb here or do you think that's logical? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and hold, upholds all things by the word of his power. So if we're seeing an appearance of the Lord, and again, the word is very clear here, the Lord appeared to Abram, then we're seeing the one who is the exact representation of his nature. The one who gives us, brings us the physical representation of God who is spirit. And therefore, Abraham saw his day and was glad. The Lord, I believe Jesus, is appearing here to Abram. Now, it's been, think about this, 25 years, at least since the first revelation of God to Abram, since God said, go forth and be a blessing. 25 years has passed. Guess what? No revelation. Silence. No appearance. 
No word from the Lord, at least according to the biblical record. He goes up to Haran, 25 years go by, nothing. He finally leaves Haran, continues the journey God called him on in the first place, comes down to Shechem, and there's God. And there the Lord appears. Listen, if it's been a while since you've heard from the Lord, if it's been a while since you've had any sense of his leading in your life, if you felt like God has been silent with you, I'd encourage you to go back to the last thing that you know he asked you to do and do that. He may just be waiting for you to obey. Oh, he's gonna be mad at me. No, he's not. That's the way we think. You know, it's, it's sad and a little humorous to me, but I talk to people who have been out of fellowship sometimes. And I get the same thing. Someone walks in the door who hasn't been at the bridge in two years, and they say the same thing. I'm so sorry I haven't been here. And I'm like, well, I've missed you too, but, I, you know, it's okay. So I'm glad you're here. Yeah, but I'm just, I'm, I feel so bad that I haven't. You know why people stop coming to church? They'll miss a Sunday. Something will go wrong in life. They'll miss another one. Some other things will happen, and they'll start to feel like, oh, you know, if I walk into that place, it's going to burn down. <laughs> I've heard that one too. You know, and, and the more Sundays and the more Wednesdays and the more time that's missed, the more we feel guilty for not being there so we don't go. Isn't that silly? That's the way we think. The more we feel like, wow, now God's, and Pastor Rick, he's got to be angry. I don't even notice. No offense. No offense. But I'm not sitting up there every Monday with a ledger going, yep, he was, oh, she wasn't here. Well, she was. Give her a gold star. Four weeks in a row, yippee-doo. I don't do that. And especially with naval personnel in and out, it's hilarious. I, someone will come here, you know, be here for three years, and then they'll deploy or they'll be sent somewhere else. Five years go by, they walk in the door, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I go off the other way. They're like, we're back. And I'm like, yeah, you weren't here last Sunday? No, we've been gone five years. Okay. <laughs> That's me. God is fully aware if you're here or not, but he's not sitting around tapping his foot, angrily going, I can't even believe this. <laughs> he's glad you're here. He's so glad you're here. Man, sink into the grace of God. He's so glad that you just show up. And Abram finally comes into the land, and, and we don't see God angry. We don't see him upset. We don't hear the Bible say, God appeared to him as a large flame of fire saying, where have you been? No, he actually appears to Abram and then he confirms to him everything that, that he had already said. This is where I want you. This land is your land, not Haran, here. He says as verse seven continues, to your descendants, I will give this land. And so he, that is Abram, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him right at the Oak of Moray. God is not really concerned, afraid of, or worried about paganism. Whatever. You know what paganism is going to do? It's going to fall. And right there at the Oak of Moray, Abram builds an altar. I love it. By the way, this place, this is Shechem. And Moses, in writing Genesis, is going to use names that will be given later. 
for places that are, so it may or may not have actually been called Shechem. Moses said this is the site of Shechem because that's a Hebrew word, and as the Jewish people would come back to the land, they would name this place Shechem. We know exactly where Shechem is. It sits at a crossroads. It sits right in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Right there at the base is Shechem. Cheryl and I actually, with, our, with a guide, uh, were about 65 feet away from Shechem in a little car before we turned around and went the other way because we're not allowed to go into Shechem. It's, it's one of the danger areas. It's Nablus today. And it's a hotbed of anti-Jewish terrorism. But Shechem is that pass it, right between, now think about this, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Does that sound familiar to any Bible students? That's the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim, and the Mount of Cursing, Mount Ebal. That's where we'll see in Deuteronomy, God had Israel divide up half on the Mount of Mount Gerizim, Mount of Cursing, half on Mount Ebal, Mount of, of oh, sorry, other way around. Mount Gerizim, Mount of Blessing, Mount Ebal, Mount of Cursing, had the people line up and have blessings and curses read right there at Shechem, right there at the pass, and all the people would say amen and accept. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be cursed. And they said amen to that. That's Shechem. And there at Shechem, it's known even today among Jewish people as the historical place of decision. Shechem. Here the Israelites chose to accept. They decided to accept God's law at the base of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Here, Joshua will make his final shout out to the people, Joshua chapter 24, at the place of Shechem. Here, the kingdom of Solomon was split and divided between Rehoboam, the kingdom to the south, and Jeroboam taking the 10 tribes to the north. First King chapter 12. You know what's most amazing to me? Right here at Shechem, where Abram built this altar, Jacob dug a well, and there at Shechem is the town called Sikar. Ring a bell? This is the first place that Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to the Samaritan woman. First time where the Son of God says, I who speak with you am he. At Shechem. In fact, John chapter four, just listen to this, verse 23. Jesus said to her, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, Shechem. And it was right there that 2,000 years prior, Abram planted his flag in the face of Elon Musk, Moray. <laughs> right there at Elon Moray, at the terebinth of the teacher, Abram built his first altar coming into the land because God appeared there. God appeared to Abram, <laughs> and God appeared to a Samaritan woman in the same exact place. Verse eight. Then Abram proceeded 
From there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, Bethel, Bet-El. Bet means house, like Bethlehem, house of bread. Bet-El, house of God. So on the one side, there would be a city that eventually, not right then, Moses is, again, ascribing the Hebrew names to these places, but on one side was a city that would be called Bethel, house of God. On the other side was a city called Ai, which is translated heap of ruins, garbage dump. Okay, so you've got the house of God and you've got the garbage dump, and that's exactly where the sojourner lives. Think about that. This is, this is where he is. He, he pitches his tent and he builds an altar. Uh, more about that in just a minute. But he does it with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. So the house of God to the west and the heap of ruins to the east. And where the sojourning saint lives is between the heap of ruins, this world, and the heavenly house of God. We, like Abram, are right in the middle. We're in between. We are not to pitch our tents in this world, in this heap of ruin. But we're not yet in the house of God. We're sojourners, like Abram. We're travelers, like this father of the faithful. We're wanderers in a land that is not our own, looking for a better one. In fact, Hebrews eleven nine 9 says, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Yaakov, following heirs uh, or fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? Because Hebrews 11, verse 10 says, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he sojourned. He didn't go into the city, set up shop, buy a nice little townhouse, and settle down. He stayed. Abram would stay his entire life moving about from place to place, pitching tents and building altars. By the way, where the heavenly city is concerned, Ephesians 2.19 tells us we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So we live in between. We know our heavenly home is waiting. We know God, that Jesus went to prepare a place for us. We know that's the ultimate destination and that's where we will settle in. We don't settle for this world. We will settle with Jesus. In the meantime, like Abram, we're sojourners. Verse nine, so Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. The Negev, anytime you see that, it's southern Israel. And as a matter of fact, most of the time in the Hebrew scriptures where it says he went to the south, we'll see that on Sunday. Abraham will go to the north, he'll go to the south, he'll go to the east and to the west. Anytime it says he's going to the south, it literally is saying he goes down to the Negev. And the Negev is that today anyway, mostly desert region of Israel. And Abram now leaves Shechem. He heads on down this direction. He's journeying on. Underline that and note that in verse nine. That is characteristic of his life. He will spend most of the rest of his life, with a few unfortunate exceptions, in the land of Canaan, but moving about from place to place. Do you get what he's doing right here? He is making his way, walking by faith. He started in the north. He's come straight down the middle of the land. He stopped in Shechem. Now he's heading on down into the Negev. And in so doing, 
Abram is staking his claim to the promises of God. He's walking it out. I'm giving this land to you. It's all yours. If someone said to me, Rick, I have a brand new house just constructed, and I want to give it to you. I wouldn't drive by and go, eh, cool. I'd check it out, you know? I'd go upstairs. I'd go downstairs. I'd check out the basement. I'd walk all over the place. I'd be like, wow, this, oh, there's a room back here? Cheryl, come check this out. There are swings in the backyard. I mean, I would be all over this thing. God said to Abram, I'm giving you the land. So he's checking it out. Top to bottom, north to south, he's heading down. Two things that you're going to see Abram do over and over and over in his life. Derek Kidner says, there is a force in the contrast between pitched and builded. As we see in verse 8, he built an altar. And then in verse 9, he pitched his tent. And also in verse 9, he built an altar. He's going to build altars and pitch his tent. And those are the two primary things we see him do again and again and again. Kidner says, the one he does for himself, pitching his tent. The other he does for God, building an altar. The only structures Abram left behind were the altars, no relics of his own wealth. Nothing that would say, Abraham was here. Just altars to Yahweh. Abraham's altars reveal the stability of worship. That's what they were. And they weren't all altars of sacrifice. In fact, you're going to note this about the patriarchs, is they would just build altars and worship God. They wouldn't necessarily sacrifice an animal on them. Sometimes they would just stack up the stones as a memory, as a place of a reminder. So the next time they came through there, oh yeah, that's right, God appeared to me here. So he would build up these altars, and it's this picture of worship. And note what it says at the end of verse 8 there. It says he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now that's a very specific Jewish phrase. He called upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean he stood there and went, Lord. <laughs> Lord. And it's not just prayer. To call upon the name of the Lord is to worship. And again, the Hebrew mindset understands that fully. It is worshiping God. It's euphemistic for the act of worship where you are calling out to Yahweh, Adonai, Yeshua. You are praying to him. You are singing to him. You are bowing before him. You are declaring his goodness. It is worship through and through. And that's the point of the altars. These were places of worship. God appeared to him, so he worshiped. He stops here, builds an altar, and worships the Lord. And that's so incredibly important because like these stone altars, worship is stability in the messiness and the waves of our lives. Don't you experience that? When it's upside down, when it's sideways, when you're confused and you walk into church and your head's spinning, you're like, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this week. And the worship begins and suddenly it's okay. You know why? Because God is on the throne. You realize sometimes it's a couple of lines in, sometimes it's at the very end of the worship set, and sometimes it's halfway through teaching, but it hits you, God's got this. It's gonna be okay. If he can do this, 
they can take care of this. He's got us. And that's where our worship is so vitally important and our worship is not about song selection and it's not about personal favorites and it's not about style. Rachel knows this so I can share this, but when she first started out with us, it was tough for me. I had been leading for 11 years my way. She comes along <laughs> and starts doing it her way. And of course, the emails are flying in. Well, she doesn't sing it the way you do. And I'm like, well, darn right she doesn't sing it the way I do because I do it right. And I would sit there in the songs, and you didn't, I hope you didn't see this, but I would have this literal civil war going on between my head and my heart. And it was me just going, Oh, that's not the way I sing this song. And me going, shut up and worship. Okay. <laughs> and it would take me four or five songs and finally I would get there and I would remember this is not about me and it's not about Rachel. It's about Jesus. <coughs> and it only really took me about a year to adjust, so that's good. <laughs> you know, we are so blessed and have been so blessed by Rachel's leading. And you know what? And I say this with zero ego. I was so blessed when I got to lead. But it wasn't about either one of us. It's about Jesus. The stability is never in the personnel in a church. I could leave tomorrow. I'm not planning to, but I could. It'll be okay. Things change, people change, things shift, but God is stable and we build the altar to the Lord and there we worship and it is our stability and nothing alters our perspective in this world like worship does. That's where I stop and as I said before, I say, God is in control. God is on the throne and it doesn't matter what my government's doing and it doesn't matter what's happening in the swirling world around me. God's got this. Praise the Lord. Worship is our stability, like those stone altars that Abram was just leaving all over the land. And every time he walked by, yep, that reminds me, God's got this. And God is spirit. And remember, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I, one last thing, just to pick on you for a second, Rachel, but your coming and taking over was the best thing that could happen to me. You need to hear me say that because it altered my perspective. Because worship became about Jesus again. And I thank the Lord for that. Abram's tent, on the other hand, shows us not the stability of worship like the altars did, but his tents showed us the flexibility of wandering. That like Abram, we are sojourners. John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Guess what? You're a sojourner. You're a wanderer. And you don't know what Christ has for you tomorrow. You don't know where you're gonna be in a week. I don't know. You don't know what's gonna happen in 2020 should we even get there. You don't know. He knows. And the sojourner understands that we are wanderers in the hand of the Lord. And so we have this flexibility. And by the way, I love this quote. C.S. Lewis once said, if you live for the things of earth, you'll never get them. If you live for heaven, you'll get it and the earth thrown in as well. 
And Jesus said, even better, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well, Matthew 6, 33. <coughs> and so the kingdom is not here yet. The kingdom's not here yet. Seek the kingdom first. It's not here. So you keep seeking and you don't settle. By the way, by the way, at the end of this section here, because we come down to the end of verse nine and the first half of this chapter kind of concludes a little bit before we go into the final story of the chapter. In these first 10 verses, literally, to the first part of verse 10, that's where it stops in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. Now there was a famine in the land, period. So that ends the first section. And in this first section, Abram's name appears, guess how many times? Seven times. Abram's name appears seven times. One other word also appears seven times, and it is the word land. Land. Abram, land. Abram, land. Abram, land. Seven times. The promise is being confirmed by God. Now, the second half of the chapter. Oh, my goodness, we need to hurry. Seriously, I didn't, okay. The first half of chapter 12 shows a formative faith, but now, now Abram's faith begins to falter, and actually this will happen more quickly. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. First sign of a faltering faith. Abram has fear of the famine. How about you? You ever fear famine? Do you fear deprivation, forfeiture, loss, bankruptcy? Do you look at your account and say, we need payday to come like last week? Do you fear famine? This is a faltering faith. There's a famine. Oh, no. What do we do? Let's go down to Egypt. Did God tell him to go down to Egypt? Nope. Abram just decided to go and sojourn there in the overflow of the Nile River where the land was still lush and where the famine wasn't so bad. He heads down to Egypt. How often do we go down to Egypt for provisions rather than up to the Lord in faith? And that's what he does. By the way, note this, and we'll see this especially when we get to Exodus, Lord willing, you always go down to Egypt. You never go up to Egypt. It's always down to Egypt, and Egypt throughout the Bible is always a picture of the world. We go to the world. We go to Egypt. We say, I can get my provision here. I can get my provision there. This is how it's gonna work. Instead of going up to Yahweh Jireh, the Lord our provider. Watch what happens. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. By the way, that's the right thing, husbands, to say to your wives. <laughs> say it a lot. Did I tell you you were a beautiful woman this morning? No? Well, I'm telling you, don't, guys, don't be the guy who said, I told you you were beautiful on our wedding day, and if it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> tell her. And tell her often, I know that you're a beautiful woman. Verse 12, and when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. 
but they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. What great faith. Now listen, Sarai, according to scripture, was a stunner. This woman, she's 65 years old here and beautiful. Not that you can't be beautiful at 65. Many of you are. I'm just throwing it out there. By the way, when a similar story happens later on in Genesis 20 with a king named Abimelech, at that point, Sarai is about 95 and still considered breathtaking. That's a gorgeous woman. Scripture's clear about that. She's, she's beautiful, and they're going down to the land, and, and, and Abram starts to talk to her about her beauty, and he, unfortunately, he's not complimenting her. He's conspiring He's worried for his own neck. Second sign of a faltering faith is not just fear of famine, fear of loss of provision. It is fear of man. In fact, it's one of the worst things that can happen to faith. Fear of man. Abram fears that when the Egyptians lay, eye, lay eyes on Sarah or Sarai, he's dead. They'll kill him. They'll take her. And by the way, ancient archives indicate this kind of thing was not uncommon the taking of a wife and the killing of a husband so the wife can become or can belong to the man. Ancient archives? What ancient archives? Well, the Bible for one. Not only in this story, in fact, a thousand years later, a wife is taken, her husband is killed by none other than King David. And it's because that's what they did. It happened, it was cultural, even after a thousand years. Things didn't change back then as rapidly as they change now. And I point that out simply to say, do you realize how many temptations and transgressions and sins could be avoided if we just read the word of God? And I don't mean show up at Bible study, I mean have the Bible on the nightstand and every night read some. Just be reading through the Bible, just read the scriptures. Pick a book and go. Start at the beginning and go. What about the genealogies? We'll deal with those. But read the word and you will survive the pitfalls. How do I know? Well, what if David had read this story? You think maybe it would have given him a heads up not to do the same thing that Pharaoh is about to do? What if David was aware of it? In fact, God told him to be. Deuteronomy 17 verse 18 said, now it will come about it shall come about when he, that is the new king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law of Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He will write this for himself in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of Torah and these statutes. What if David had? perhaps the entire Bathsheba incident would not have happened. Now, back to the story on the other side of it. Here is Abram, and he's saying, cover for me, Sarai. They're gonna see you. They're gonna kill me. They're gonna take you. Cover for me. Be my cover. Lie for me. Tell them you're my sister. You know what? In the biblical covenant of marriage, the husband is supposed to cover the wife. 
and not the other way around. And I say that to you, brothers. I don't care what culture says today. The responsibility of a godly husband is to be a cover for his wife. You protect her, you love her like Christ loved the church. That's our calling as husbands. Chivalry is not dead as far as God and the scriptures are concerned. That a man is to cover his wife, not the other way around, but Abram is about to throw Sarai under the harem. (laughs) And all to save his own skin. Verse 14, it came about that when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So now talk spreading around. Pharaoh's officials saw her and they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. I can just imagine the look on Sarai's face as they're leading her away and Abram is saying nothing. (laughs) Wow. Therefore, he, that is Pharaoh, verse 16, treated Abram well for her sake because you would. They understood Abram was her brother. Oh, let's take care of the brother so I can have, you know, his sister. And he gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. And I'm wondering how in the world Abram slept that night, but apparently he did. (laughs) But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, technically speaking, Sarai was Abram's sister, his half-sister. We find this out in the second She's My Sister scam, which is in Genesis 20, when Abram tells Abimelech, the king of Gerar, Genesis 20, verse 12, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So she's a half-sister. So you know, he's just bending the truth a little bit. Is she your wife? No, my sister. It's just a little white lie. It's not that big a deal, right? It's just, you know, a false witness, a doctored dossier. Hey, guess what? That's the world we live in. That's politics. I, I'm so amazed. I sit there and I watch. And, I, and I'll go, I'll like watch some Fox News and then I'll watch some CNN. Not because I really care to watch one of the two, the second one. Okay. But, but I want, I'm trying to be fair-minded. So I think, okay, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to hear what they say. And it's, it's the polar opposite. They can look at the exact same piece of paper and stand there and say, this is the truth. This is the truth. And I think, how is any American citizen supposed to really know the truth? Because the press doesn't seem to know. The press's truth is whatever they want it to be. That's what we hear in the media. Now, the politicians. Now, So then you start listening to them go back. This is why we're going on so long tonight. I know. But, <laughs> but you listen to them. And so the Republican will make his statement. And by the end of his statement, you're going, oh, yeah, that guy's right on. And then the Democrat comes in and makes their statement polar opposite, and they're reading the same paper. That's the way of the world. That is not the way of the Lord. We are not the benders of the truth. We are not the little white lie tellers. We are not the ones who throw shade on the truth. We speak the truth in love. We deal with fact. 
and reality. And Abram is blowing it here. Why? Fear of man. Fear of man. Now, you might read this and say, all right, but I don't think this is fair. The Lord struck Pharaoh in his house. You would expect verse 17 to be the Lord struck Abram for being a foolish man, for being faithless, for lying. Punish the sinner. Guess what? Biblical principle. When we sin, others suffer. And it happens all the time in Scripture and in life. When we sin, other people often will suffer the consequence. Joshua 22, verse 20. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban and wrath fall on all the congregation of Israel? We'll get to that story if you haven't heard it. I won't tell it now. But Achan sins big time. And all of Israel suffers for it. And Joshua goes on to say, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. In fact, his whole family went down with him. Because when we sin, others will suffer. Sin is far-reaching in its consequence. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. You know what a stumbling block is? It's when you do something that causes someone else to fall. And that's exactly what Abram did. He did sin. He lied. No question. He was afraid and he lied and Pharaoh and his entire household suffered for it. Only one who we believe didn't suffer for it was Sarai, which is, I think, wonderful. But I read the story and say, why, Abraham, why'd you do it? Where'd your faith go? Faith falters in the fear of man. First, it was the fear of the famine, loss of, oh no, I'm not gonna be able to eat. And God's going, will you trust me? And then, it's the fear of man, which I believe is the single most damaging driver of doubt. The fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Abram's name means exalted father. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. So verse 18, then Pharaoh called Abram. <laughs> What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? How did Pharaoh know Sarai was the issue? Again, she's the only one that's not having a problem with whatever this plague was. Could have been hemorrhoids or anything, I don't know. <laughs> Verse nine, hey, God did that, you'll see that. Deb's back there laughing. He slapped some mean hemorrhoids on the Philistines. Can't wait for that story. Where's the filter? Verse 19. Why do you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. That's a nice way of saying they rode him out of town on a rail. Yeah, escort him to the edge of Egypt. I want this guy gone. Now listen, stay with me just a few more minutes here. How did Sarai feel? I wonder how she felt. I wonder what it was like on that ride back to Canaan's land. I bet it was mighty quiet. <laughs> but <laughs> in Sarai's case, sisters, listen. Though her husband's faith 
faltered and failed her. God did not. God did not. Sisters, God will not fail you even though your man does. <laughs> now, why are you saying amen? Is there something we need to talk about, Bill? <laughs> I know. God is always faithful. Listen to that. Just listen quickly. Verse 1 Peter chapter 3. You wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Translation, even if he's being an idiot, even if he's being a fool, if he's showing no faith, just, just be submissive. Oh, I mean, in our culture, are you kidding me? Be submissive. Uh-uh. They may be won by the behavior as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. In other words, outward, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And here she is, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You know what's amazing about Sarai? As they're walking back up to Canaan's land, Abram has got to, I mean, he's a, he's a man. He's got to be going. <laughs> and she says, yes, Lord. Did, did she call me? Did she call me? Yeah, she, okay. Yes, Lord. She called him Lord. She respected him. She obeyed him. You know what she did when he said, tell them you're my sister? All right. Okay. Again, she was his sister. You know where she went? Into Pharaoh's house. We don't have any record of her complaining, screaming, yelling. Abram, you be She disobeys and goes. She submitted to her husband's foolishness. Why? Because she had faith in God. Because she trusted him. That is the key. In, in a marriage that's going sideways, in a marriage that's difficult, in a marriage that's painful, when you, as a wife, and I know, oh, you know it's so easy for you as a husband to talk to us wives. I'm letting the word do it. But when you are facing difficulty, listen, your strength, your trust, your hope, your faith is in God. So you cry out to him. You lean into him. You trust in him and not in your husband if he's not leading in the direction of God, okay? And perhaps, perhaps he'll be one because he sees how you're trusting. Maybe his faith will return because of yours. What about Abram? Did he get off scot-free? <laughs> no, he didn't. He got sheep and oxen and donkeys and camels and men servants and maidservants. Chapter 13, verse 1, and we'll stop. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife 
and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Listen. <laughs> Here's the fallout for Abram. If you think, oh, well, he got away with everything. Mm-mm. First of all, in chapter 13, he's gonna have conflict with Lot because now they have so much livestock, they can no longer stay in the same place. So the family divides, and wealth, in this case livestock, is always the root of so much family dysfunction. He just sits there underneath, and it causes these divisions and these problems, but it gets worse for Abram. Not only does he have to divide now away from Lot, his nephew, but Abram brought back from Egypt a little Egyptian handmaid who we'll meet later on by the name of Hagar. Hagar is in the house. This acquisition would invite tension in his tent unlike any he had ever experienced. It would ignite an everlasting enmity between Arabs and Jews, which is burning today. It's still going on. 4,000 years after this situation, Abram would deal with the heartbreak of looking at his son, Ishmael, who was not his heir, and wishing, he even says, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. And he has to know that this son, who he, he did love, he cared about Ishmael. Ishmael's not the one. God says, I told you it would be through Sarah, and it's gonna be through Sarah, and Isaac would be born, and Abram would now have to deal with these two boys who would be at odds, his own sons. I can tell you as a father, you never wanna deal with that. Not because my sons are fighting or anything, but I'm just saying, it would tear me up. He would have to deal with his wife, Sarai, and this maidservant, Hagar, and all the mess that would come with it. So chapter 12, it reveals for us Abram's formative faith in the first half, and then his faltering faith in the second half. And then in chapter 13, we're gonna be back in good form. His faith will be formed again. But Abraham, through all of this, he learned that his human strategy didn't save the day, that it was God's divine intervention. By the way, why did God do that? Why did God intervene and not only protect Sarai, I'm glad he did, but why did he save Abram from this mess he had gotten himself into? Because he'd made a covenant promise. He said, I'm gonna do this. And so even as Abram sinned and messed it up, God steps in, cleans up the mess, brings him out, and continues his walk. Abram feared, he lied, he sinned, God intervened anyway. And I am so thankful because guess what? He does with you and me. I fear, I sin, I lie, and God keeps intervening. And I'm not giving license to sin here. I'm just saying this is our story. This is our life. Faith is a formative process and we are under construction and we are in training and we are being schooled and we will be at the age of 25, the age of 55, 75, and 105 until Jesus calls the sojourners home. And then we'll go. Romans 4 verse one, what shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Father, form our faith. Help us, Lord, to trust you 
to keep walking with you. Comfort us, Father, in our fallenness and our foolishness and draw us near as our, as our faith grows, as we learn all the things we try to do that don't work. May we at the same time learn all that you do that does work and help us to trust you, Lord. We realize that Abram's called the father of the faithful or the father of faith because that's the one thing he ended up with. And Lord, it's the one thing we want, to trust you fully. And so I pray that you will help us in this endeavor to put our full trust in you, whether there's famine in our world, whether there's men that we could fear, help us to put our faith and our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.